we're always coming from a mindset of where we know best and we have an answer. And we'll consult on it, but it's it's what we come up with. And so to me, until we we can actually say, we don't know what this answer is. What do you think? And talk together to build something. <laughs> I don't know if that's even doable. I mean, obviously, it's a very scary thing. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. Kansai. This is Indigenous Perspectives. A program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. The spirit world is, is more real than most of us believe. The spirit world is, is everything. In 2012, four women, Nina Wilson, Sheila McLean, Sylvia McAdam, and Jessica Gordon, hosted a series of teach-ins throughout Saskatchewan. And they sparked something, a reaction which erupted into a groundswell movement from the grassroots. These four women, three from First Nations, and one non-Indigenous ally called upon all people to join them in a peaceful revolution toward reconciliation. A call to honor Indigenous sovereignty, to protect the land and the water, and to put an end to economic and social inequality. And that call was heard across North America, and eventually the world. Idle No More quickly became one of the largest Indigenous mass movements in Canadian history inspiring thousands of people to participate in teach-ins, rallies, and protests across Turtle Island and beyond, and changing our social and political landscape in the process. But it began small, with just a handful of individuals who saw the persisting problems in their society and who sought change. Who wakes up in the morning and thinks, today, my friends and I will be the start of a new movement in our country's history. Today, we'll host a talk which will spread from city to province to country to continent until the entire world is aware that even in peaceful times, there is unrest here. Even in this land of prosperity, there is suffering. But perhaps we should, every morning, confront ourselves not only with the power we have at hand to contribute to the betterment of our society, but our obligation to do so. 
If everyone in this country woke up every morning with a mission to think beyond themselves and devote whatever time or resources or skills they had to ensure that every Canadian had access to the necessities of life, clean drinking water, affordable food and housing, a good education. This really would be the best country on earth to live in. And we wouldn't need a news story or report to tell us so. So do something. It's in you. To care about others, to be concerned when people are suffering, to want everyone to be safe and well, to understand that the prosperity of others does not come at the expense of prosperity to ourselves. Seems quintessentially Canadian to me. And now, in their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants about their ideas for the way forward on reconciliation. Do you have a personal wish list? If, uh, if you were in charge, if you could make sweeping changes to the country or identify particular priorities, what would be your top three wish list of things that you would would change? Well, I think every school in Canada at the grade six or eight level should have the blanket exercise as part of the curriculum. In some school districts, in some provinces, that is the case right now. But that is such a powerful tool to become more aware of the true history of the relationship between the European and the, the Indigenous nations in this country and, and, and to show the impacts of the, the actions of the Europeans on the Indigenous populations and, and what it did to, to the land and the way of life that was very sophisticated prior to contact and, you know, was very sharing and, and, and peaceful uh, in the initial one to 200 years. And, and it just got sidetracked by greed, basically. Uh, the fur trade greed, uh, just, you know, political power greed of, of European nations that came to this country and formed governments and things like that. So that, that's, that's the first thing. I would like to see every school have the blanket exercise as part of their curriculum to really get that true understanding of what happened at a very young age uh, in the communities. We're looking at representation. We're looking at having the right amount of people in the right number of positions. And we're looking to support through mentoring and coaching in a variety of ways. But I think the success is really looking at true inclusion and not just the right amount of numbers, looking at how their perspective adds value to our policies, to our decision-making, to our innovation, just to overall mental health and wellness as well. I think exploring how to properly understand each other, our differences, and how to make room at the table for all of them and make it safe 
and make it more than just an apology, but follow through with some clear actions, I think that would make the biggest difference for all. I can't describe how important it was for me to come into government and not just have a colleague who is Indigenous, but to be working with two senior PhD Indigenous researchers of research who was Indigenous, a number of other uh, colleagues in the research group and elsewhere who were Indigenous. And in addition to that, connections to Indigenous academics who had a long history because of the Royal Commission of working with government on issues of policy change around around Indigenous issues, self-government, well-being, and so on. I was ridiculously privileged to have access to so many Indigenous uh, mentors in my career early on. My God. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, it's, it's actually kind of crazy. It would be very difficult to replicate. It would be impossible to replicate that particular type of network, but I think people coming in today really need to find ways to bridge those gaps, bridge those divides, build those relationships, and have them built in a way that is that is durable, that is not just transactional, not just contract-based, but actually have long-term working relationships. Because that's how those conversations will become a little bit less fractious, a little bit less uncomfortable. And we can focus on working on the uncomfortable issues. I remember having, you know, when I became a free agent, sitting down with uh, with Neil, the ADM, and he said, well, how do we fix this problem? Like, what do we do to address reconciliation? How, how to, how, from a policy perspective, what's the answer? And I, I said, we can't have the answer because it has to be found and developed in partnership with Indigenous peoples, we can't go and say, here's the policy shift we're going to make, because that's what we always do, right? <laughs> you know, we, we say, okay, we're going to do this now, and then we go and consult. We never go with a blank page. It's too risky. But maybe that's what we need to do. We're always coming from a mindset of where we know best, and we have an answer. And we'll consult on it, but it's it's what we come up with. And so, to me, until we we can actually say, we don't know what this answer is. What do you think? And talk together to build something. <laughs> I don't know if that's even doable. I mean, obviously, it's a very scary thing. But the more I look at where we are and look at where we've been and learn, you know, about the things of the past and read different perspectives. I think we really need to be open to to adopting different perspectives and views and and, um, and admitting we don't know what we don't know. And in government, that's, you don't see that very often, especially in the higher levels. You don't see um, senior management admitting that. It's it's considered um, a weakness. You know, how could you possibly be a DM or an ADM or a DG if you don't know? I think 
think the truth and reconciliation piece of the truth is, is important to recognize. So, you know, accepting that things occurred in the past, understanding the time that those things happened and the belief systems around them and, uh, and, and the, uh, the impact that they've had on people, understanding that. So building some empathy, I believe, is important. Um, after that, I would hope that um, with that understanding that people can start to uh, work together to heal. And so, you know, I would say that my my culture is at a disadvantage. There's some significant gaps that need to be closed. There's some behavioral aspects to everyone that needs to change to have that occur. I live in rural Canada now. I can tell you um, that the receptivity to Indigenous reconciliation is definitely not the same as you will find. I would say particularly amongst new Canadians or recent Canadians versus Canadians that were has been here for many more years and or uh, and, and then I think urban Canadians have a different view than rural and it's, a, it's an interesting an interesting thing to see so I think my wish would be that people start to not feel concerned or a sense of fear of change but to embrace the opportunity to, to heal and to find the respectful balance to, to dealing with one another whether in terms of changing an attitude a belief you know clarifying a myth busting embracing the communities visiting, uh, you know, through dialogue. So I think it's more sense of community. So I think that the chance for people to feel free to um, to learn and to teach would be nice. And there will always be people who are going to be negative and concerned and, and will act out of fear. But I think that would be my wish. Even in our global politics, right? I think that's all this comes down to is race and belief, friction. And those things are usually fear-based. Somebody's going to have an advantage. When we started talking about the reconciliation process, uh, to be honest, I, I had a lot of trepidation. I didn't really think it was going to be fruitful. But in in some ways, I think it is definitely a good thing because uh, even things like how Lord Downey spoke out about how things are bad for, for Aboriginal still today, like in the present, and how there needs to be attention to it. I think that the attention, just the conversation, is uh, is going a long way. And there's always going to be people who are, who are going to naysay, who are going to uh, use it as like political ammunition to push their opinions. And a lot of times those are opinions of intolerance. And I, and I completely understand why people would push those opinions. It's kind of that entitlement, the entitlement that they've been living with, that they get every day. That's, you know, that, that uh, kind of like, I hate to say, but like the white privilege that people, that people talk about nowadays. That's uh, talking about reconciliation is basically talking about pulling, clawing back some of those entitlements, uh, or even just saying that they can't can't have white pride. And and that's fine to say you're proud of your culture, you're proud of your race, and everything. But when you get to the point where you're oppressing other people and trying to tell them they can't have the same rights, that's where it starts to get really frustrating for me. Uh, I follow a lot of political uh, web news news sources and uh, opinions on things on both sides of the. Uh, the range and one of the things for me that's really important is that like I said it's, it's okay for people to have pride and like, if you want to be proud of your white heritage it's perfectly fine but it's when it starts stepping on the toes of other cultures and other people and uh, I think a lot of people right now who are against reconciliation or against just the conversation I think that they, they sense that some of their, their benefits in society are, are trying to be 
leveled out, equalized, and, and maybe they had it a little better than other people. So it's something I, I see a lot on, on, on the internet and comments and threads and things like that. It, it really, it kind of makes me sad. And I kind of, sometimes, I, I used to actually, I took a stand back when um, with the refugees were coming into Canada and people were out, out in uh, full force against that. And uh, it, it's just kind of this ridiculous hypocrisy for me. And there's, there's so many people in Canada and the Aboriginal population is one of the fastest growing ones. But the, the vast majority of Canada are in some form a refugee, a migrant, somebody who, who isn't from here originally. So for people to stand up against that and say, no, this is my Canada, it's, it's really a big like a hypocritical standing point. And for a little while, I was speaking out against that. And uh, I was really taking a hard line, uh, drawing a hard line in the sand and saying, telling people in, in, in uh, very concise debates, trying not to get emotional, but just trying to present the facts. And uh, a lot of times people would get emotional and I'd have to, you know, lose a Facebook friend or maybe that person would just stop talking to me or it would degrade into uh, beyond a debate more into just a kind of childish argument or threats or something like that. I would just wish that people would read more, would look more, would go for the real Canadian, if you want to call it that, much as I'm a Métis, to learn about all of that, just so that you feel it, it's in you, uh, that you're part of it. Because otherwise, Canada is simply, uh, well, it's just a political thing. It's not a nation. It's just a political definition with physical parameters. And we always say from coast to coast to coast, whatever. The Métis, for example, we have our own flag. We have our own national anthem. We have an original homeland. And you have to be proud of that. And, and I, I think we've lost that, that pride. It's just a place to come that says Canada, you get a passport, and um, you make money. But are you really part of it? Are you really part of this land? And the people who have been here, were always here, are part of this land. That's my wish to, for people to be a part of it. I guess the other thing I would like to see is more walk the talk. There's so much talk at high, high, high level political forums. The prime minister talks a lot about his his high priority of nation building, nation to nation relationships with with First Nations and Métis and Inuit. But it's been a lot of talk. I would I'd really like to see some action. I'd like to see a real partnership. Uh, with the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit and the Government of Canada in their distinctive paths and uh, recognizing the rights of, of each of the, the Indigenous nations in this country and uh, allowing for self-determination and, and that to truly happen, self-government for, for First Nations, Métis and Inuit and self-determination in a partnership with the Government of Canada. So more walk the talk at high levels because that's a lot of what it's been so far. 
I really think it's the citizens' responsibility. If we would unite and say these are our, these are our friends, you know, these are our our people, and we want as a country in our values, we want our politicians to do this for us, then it will be done. Uh, so I really think it's it's about each and every person understanding understanding the realities that the indigenous people are facing, but also making concerted efforts to live out the Canadian values that we hold so deep and looking at our people far above, protecting our people far above protecting our history and protecting what we stand for far above protecting what previous conquerors and whatnot used to stand for. So I think that overall increasing our understanding, looking to find ways to be more one with each other, and looking closely at the challenges that Indigenous community faces. I was attending a WebEx recently on suicide in the workplace and lots of interesting facts overall around age and gender and whatnot, but it was not a surprise that there's suicide rates in the Indigenous community are that much higher. The people that that survive uh, a family member that has committed suicide it's a grave, grave pain for them. And we need to, as a society, look at what they're facing and look at our resources and look at our skill sets and just put everything in the pot and, and help. We, sh- we need to raise our hands. We help so many other communities and nations, even outside of Canada. And when I look at home here and I see the housing conditions and I see the suicide rates, and I see so many other things that are happening right in our own backyard. Um, I really don't know what the solution is. I'm sure it's way more complex than what I've been able to to understand so far. But I still think that if we as citizens become aware and raise our hand to help, it can only serve to be a positive in the end. It's difficult sometimes because a lot of people don't see themselves in this this work. They don't see the relevance to their lives. They don't see the relevance to where they are. And and I guess my, my thought is, you know, if you live in Canada, if you're part of this country, it's relevant to you. It's part of your story. I always find it really interesting when when I was doing a couple of the learning sessions and, and some of the the new Canadians and their comments because they they're they're startled by by what they learn. Because of course everybody has this vision of Canada as this perfect place and you know it's it's such a wonderful country that respects freedoms and 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 when they learn about our secrets. You know, yesterday someone said, Well, it's really important that this is part of information new immigrants receive. And I would agree, if you're making this your home, you need to understand the history of this country. And you need to understand about Indigenous rights and treaty rights and why there's a special relationship with the Crown and where that comes from and why it's not something that you just get over with time.
I think that's kind of the biggest obstacle behind reconciliation is that there is a lot of people who benefit from the way the society is structured right now. Uh, you know, anybody who lives in a major city has, has got no problem with drinking water and infrastructure and just having a, a generally healthy situation. But there are lots of Aboriginal communities that don't have those basic things. And I think it's, it's really important that the conversation is going on, bringing light to those things, even if the nation is, because there are things and actions being done. And uh, just, you know, and a lot of it's still uh, not fully completed, but just things like getting uh, clean drinking water to you know, communities and just, just the awareness that, that those people, those places have been without for 20, 30 years. It's kind of ridiculous and it's, it's very hypocritical. I find it for people to, to live happily and expect other people to, to not live in the same kind of condition with those kind of basic needs met. With me in my job as an Indigenous person who has been wounded in childhood, you know, I had a manager who said to me, "You know what? I know I know you're intelligent, Pam, but I think there's something wrong with you." And so she had me go in for a psych educational assessment, which is covered by Sun Life. So I did that, and then I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was why I was having a hard time focusing. So I have to admit that through my career as a public servant coming in wounded from the hurts in childhood of typical Indigenous families, because both my parents were from residential school. And so they came in with all their hurt and their pain, raising me. And that wounded me, even though I was never physically abused or uh, never yelled at. But I could feel my parents' pain. And it just somehow it affected me to the point where I have PTSD. So my manager, you know, looked at the recommendations and the psych ed assessment and said, you know what, and we're going to implement these, what we can, right? And this is what, you know, this is what I would like you to do, but I can't tell you to do those things because it has nothing to do with work. Um, the supports were built in for me at work. At that time of a psychiatric assessment, which wasn't too long ago, just a couple of years ago, in our department, you know, with the mental health and wellness, it just came about within the last year. And so there's not an, enough awareness about mental health and wellness and supports there, not just for Indigenous people, but supports there for everybody else. Because I think most people in this world are walking around in pain I think there's more people walking around in pain than there are people walking around feeling healthy. You know, looking at the public service right now, I think that's where we're lacking. And I think, you know, there should be more workshops on not diagnosing, but for managers to identify and work with your employee to make them successful in their job rather than the opposite of saying, you know what, you're not performing we're going to take this action against you. Because there's all kinds of mental health issues that we need to know about as managers. And that would be not just PTSD, but that would include like adult ADD or ADHD. It could be about depression. It could be about, you know, addiction. So now that the supports are in there for me and I'm and I'm also seeing a therapist for the last couple of years, it's 
it's made a huge improvement in my well-being in terms of being able to focus better. And with increased confidence, I'm now able to speak up and participate as a, as a team member. And, you know, I'm able to do the work that I'm supposed to do uh, with ease now. You know, it's not perfect, but, you know, that's the way it is in government. 60% of the work that you do each day has nothing to do with your performance employee agreements. And just, you know, in the past, I would not acknowledge that as it's okay, Pam, you're okay, right? You're doing the best you can do. Before, I would beat myself up saying, you know what, I'm not working on everything that was on my performance agreement. And it's just nice today from counseling and from having a good manager saying, you know what, Pam, you need to go get a psychiatric assessment done because I'm protecting you in the future with your future managers. I just had my PMA done and everything is on track and that I'm a good team member and I do extra things for mental health and raising Indigenous awareness in the sector. You know, yesterday uh, I went to a presentation from the clerk. I, there was a few bureaucrats there. And they asked him questions and he wowed them with his, uh, with his inspiring messages. But there were no challenge functions back to the clerk, right? And I wasn't sure if it was appropriate, but I went up to him and I said, I have a challenge function for you, clerk. He's like, oh. And I'm like, you know what would be a great gesture of reconciliation? First of all, I'm in an English, the central position. And I said, I, you know, in some ways I'm topped off at where I'm at because to leave my level, I would need to learn French. Uh, I said, uh, I probably am not, because it's AMI PTSB, but I'm not inspired to learn French. I understand the significance of the French language, especially here in Ottawa. But uh, I wouldn't go to the end of the earth to learn French. But I'll tell you right now, I would go to the end of the earth to learn my language. So if we can waive for, for Indigenous public servants the French requirement in lieu of them learning their Indigenous language, I bet you a lot of people would be really inspired by that. You know, the third thing, as a, as a federal public servant, um, I would I would really like to see more Indigenous employees within the federal public service. And so, to 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 look at our recruitment, our recruitment processes, to to make sure that they're culturally sensitive and not so not so what's the word. Bureaucratic is what I'm trying to say, but it doesn't really get at what I'm, what the pr- the problems are. The problems are is that the the recruitment processes and the application processes are are are, are just too. They're not flexible enough. They need there, there needs to be more flexibility to to be able to bring in some really good people that exist out in the indigenous communities bring them into the public service in a respectful and culturally appropriate way and to do everything we can within once they're in to to ensure that we have a culturally sensitive workplace that people aren't wanting to leave you, you look at the uh, public service employees over the last i don't know four or five surveys they show that you know we're we're meeting we're, we're meeting uh, employment equity targets with respect to indigenous employees 
So we're bringing people in, but we're losing them just as fast. Uh, we've got a high rate of, of, of people leaving. People are coming in, but not a lot of people are leaving, and it's because we don't have the workplace that we that we we think we might have, and we need to improve on that to to keep people and to allow them to make those contributions that I spoke about earlier, and to be able to progress and to have successful careers right up through senior leadership levels in in the organization. So that's those are the three things that I'd like to see is. You know, the blanket exercise in the schools, uh, a real commitment and action from senior levels of government, and and some and some and more Indigenous employees within the public service, uh, that to uh, and to make the public service a more more welcoming and and culturally uh, appropriate place, so people will stay. Indigenous Perspective, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Fanny Bernard, Don Bilodeau, Janice Edgar, Jeanette Fraser, Ryan Jador, Daniel Chate, Pamela Capuena, Tim Malone, Tim Lowe. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Boogie the Beat and Greg Ryder. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. <laughs>